Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The pandemic has hit women hard, and the stats are overwhelming. Women, especially women of color, are more likely to be laid off or furloughed. A report from the Center for American Progress estimates that the risk of mothers leaving or reducing their work hours amounts to $64 billion per year in lost wages and economic activity. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we listen to a panel I moderated on the deepening challenges women are facing during this pandemic. The conversation was sponsored by the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven in partnership with the Community Fund for Women and Girls. I currently serve as board chair for the Community Foundation, and I'm interested in what inclusive recovery could look like here in Connecticut. This hour, you'll hear from Melissa Boteak, Vice President for Income Security, Child Care, and Early Learning at the National Women's Law Center. Beth Bai is Commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. And Thais Moore is Director of Marketing and Communications at Lockton Companies. I began our conversation by asking Melissa about the possibility that women aren't leaving, but in reality are being pushed out of the workforce. So the first thing I want to say before we even get into COVID-19 and its effects is that the pre-COVID status quo wasn't so peachy for women to begin with, and particularly for Black and Brown women. The normal before this meant that women comprised two-thirds of those in the lowest paid jobs, uh, that affordable and high quality child care cost as much as college tuition, uh, and that, you know, most workers did not have access to paid family and medical leave to care for themselves and a loved one. So this is the situation we walked into COVID with. And it made us more vulnerable when the pandemic hit, because we did not have the workplace supports and the labor protections in place to help support not just essential workers, but people who needed to be able to stay home to avoid spread of the virus. You cannot separate public health from economic health. It's there, there's the people talk about them as though they're intention. It's the same thing. And so part of what we've been doing research on is looking at the women's labor force participation and each month how it's changing. And one of the really startling statistics uh, that got a lot of attention recently is when we published in September that four times as many women as men had left i.e. AKA been pushed out of the labor market in September. There's not causal research on why, but it coincides with the beginning of remote learning. It coincides with months and months of sort of women being pushed to the brink of trying to balance caregiving, overseeing remote learning, you know, dealing with loved ones' health crises, et cetera, and being the primary caregivers in their family with also being breadwinners. And for single women or you know, women-headed households and for black and brown women, those challenges are even more acute. And so when we look at statistics like that, we have to examine the root issue. Is it that women don't wanna work? Is it that they don't wanna support their families? No, there are not supports in place. Uh, and so if in a heterosexual married couple, oftentimes because of the gender wage gap and more specifically because of the motherhood penalty, 
you are seeing that women have less income than men, even if they're working the same amount of hours. If there's a decision between spouses or partners as to who's going to drop out of the labor market or who is going to cut their hours back, it's more likely than not going to be the woman. Uh, and then there are, in some cases, places where people just cannot find affordable, high quality childcare, even if they are desperately trying to go back to work, their childcare has closed. Um, and I can go more in depth in this because this is a big area of research for us later in the conversation, but um, we are at risk of losing nearly half of our licensed childcare spots in this country. And the women, uh, it's 93% women is the childcare workforce and it is disproportionately black women, brown women, immigrant women writ large. These are, this is the workforce behind the workforce. We've left them high and dry without PPE. We've left them without the supports to enforce safe social distancing. And so a lot of businesses owned by women have needed to close and that has left other working mothers without a safe place for their kids to be able to go back into the labor force. I'll stop there, but um, that's sort of a, a brief overview of some of the work we're doing when you see numbers like four times as many women as men dropping out slash being pushed out of the labor force. Beth, I want to pick up on this point that Melissa made, and that is that normal was not working for large groups of people in this country, but particularly for women. And when we think about that discussion back in the spring about essential workers and about frontline workers, what was often missing was the voice of childcare providers who, as Melissa said, disproportionately are women of color, are women who are becoming entrepreneurs in ways that they don't always have the support. And so when we hold that tension between wanting to support access to quality, safe childcare with the reality that often the inability to have that access can create bigger problems for the community, I wondered if you could talk from your perspective, what's happening in Connecticut and how has that tension played out? Yeah, thank you for that question. I'm, I'm so happy to be here um, and uh, honored with to be on with these panelists as well. Um, Connecticut had a lot of challenges, as you said, before COVID hit. Um, we were short about 50,000 infant toddler spaces for families that needed to work. So that was before we even started. Uh, we know that 44% of Connecticut is in a childcare desert, meaning it's very hard for families to access childcare. Um, only 20% of families in Connecticut can afford the full cost of high quality infant toddler care. Um, but when it comes to, as you said, um, families of color, so that number drops down to 6%. So 94% of families in Connecticut um, who are people of color cannot afford the full cost of infant toddler care, which is expensive in Connecticut when you get to the full cost of care, but that's with teachers still being way underpaid. 75% um, of childcare in Connecticut are private businesses and COVID has hit them very hard. Um, three quarters of programs closed when COVID hit um, and the one that's, ones that stayed open faced um, health concerns um, you, we heard about, you know, not, not enough PPE. Um, they were considered essential, um, but they weren't paid as essential workers. They were certainly the lowest paid essential workers. Uh, we did do a lot of work with uh, Governor Lamont in that he would often mention childcare workers as essential workers. We were able to stand up a program that sent extra funds to programs during COVID 
um, from the federal relief package to increase the wages of teachers working um, during COVID. Um, but those problems I talked about before, when you take that and you add a pandemic and uh, Melissa described so well what mothers are up against. In Connecticut, we've just, we're about to publish a parent survey um, that said, you know, many, many families kept their kids home. And 45% did that because they were worried about the health and safety of their children. And 35% said they didn't, they, they, kept, they kept them home because they couldn't find childcare. So there are big challenges um, in, in Connecticut. And as of today, um, we're at about 69% of our pre-COVID capacity for childcare. And think about this. So 30% less than before COVID. And we probably need more than twice as much childcare because of the hybrid models and schools closing um, we've seen a big uptick in families accessing childcare subsidies for school age care, mm -hmm. which we didn't have enough for infant, toddler and preschool care to start. Mm -hmm. So now you add a half a million dollars a month that's going away to pay for school age care. And um, we have a real, uh, real challenging time for the industry um, that does tend to be women, often women of color, I would say. Um, one of the bright spots we're seeing is that in Connecticut, we've been working to promote family child care and we have staff family child care networks. I know you're in New Haven. Um, all our kin is in New Haven and, and we have, you know, probably 10 or 11 more around the state. Um, but we are seeing an uptick in families use of family child care, trust of family child care and uh, working with 4CT and the Early Childhood Funders Collaborative we were able to stand up seven additional networks to provide support uh, through our family child care networks. Um, so we're really seeing the number of family child cares um, increase. And that was a pre-COVID goal to reduce the number of child care deserts to help entrepreneurs in their communities to build child development knowledge in communities. Um, so there has been the ability to pivot quickly and implement some things uh, to help address some of the equity issues, the affordability issues and access issues. But it's not enough. We need significant federal investment. And when I say significant, I mean tens of billions of dollars. Uh, thanks to the National Women's Law Center, the Early Childhood Alliance and others, you know, we have the smallest appropriation from the federal um, government or proposal from any caucus would bring $100 million to Connecticut in relief, critical relief. You know, Thais... Beth's comments speak to the layers of women's experiences in the workforce, the layers of women's identity, but also how that shows up. And you really live at this intersection of being a corporate executive who's responsible for the well-being of your employees and of recognizing all the layers of their lives. But you're also a mom to three kids. So two little ones and a teenager. You really span the gamut of doing that. Talk to us about how you're navigating these challenges that have been presented by COVID-19 in the professional and the personal, but also what it's taught you about being a woman in the workforce. I don't have the fancy statistics. I just have the real life, how it's impacting me. Um, you know, 
I can tell you at the beginning of the pandemic, I call it Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th was our last day physically in the office. And pre-pandemic, uh, for those that know me, I, I cover the entire series. So I travel between Boston, Hartford, New York, Philadelphia, and DC. I, I'm often on the road. Um, Friday the 13th, that changed. Um, that following Tuesday, basically, it really changed because all of a sudden I got all of these, um, these this is what needs to be done in the classroom. These are the assignments. And I just got overwhelmed. I, at that point, reached out to my manager, who happens to be the COO of our organization. It's like, I just can't do it. There's no way that I can run my team, respond to my clients and prospects, as well as parent these kids. Um, I have seven-year-old twins who learn very differently. I have a, at that point he was 15, but he was a 16-year-old um, with some learning challenges. And having to navigate all of that in, um, in the new world was very difficult. And what was offered to me was the best, most reassuring call. He called me back at 1030 that night because I texted him at nine o'clock that night. And he's like, listen, this is all new for everyone. Our workday may not look like what your typical workday was before. It may mean that you log on at five o'clock in the morning, log off at eight and come back again um, and, and just come back and forth until you can get what you need to do done for both your kids as well as for your clients. But relax. It's OK. Um, and, and he shared what he was also going through. Um, as the time went on, I was like, oh my goodness, I got it. I got my rhythm. I got rid of that, that chart that everyone saw on LinkedIn and all over social media that said, these were the times that you were going to do everything. I got rid of that chart. I allowed myself grace. I think grace was first and foremost. When you're a type A personality and things don't go just so, that's a very tough pill to swallow. So I had to allow myself to say, you know what? The kids aren't going to do gym. They're not going to do music. They're not going to do art. Not that they don't need it, but they're running around the yard. They're doing art with Mo <laughs> um, through YouTube. We're doing it as a family. Um, and I looked at it as positives in the pandemic. What is it that we can do to make this a positive? Because the kids were feeling the anxiety. I was feeling the anxiety at all different levels. Wanted to make an environment for the kids that they felt as though, you know what? This is different but we're gonna get through it. And understanding that that changed and under, understanding that you have to allow change. So what might've worked in March through June might've changed from June through September and being okay with that, being okay with that change. And as a manager, allowing that for my team, you know, understanding that my team has the same challenges um, and making sure that they have the resources that are necessary, telling them to get outside, get some sun, you know, do some exercise, go spend time with your family, um, giving them some added bonus days off um, is important. Emotional well-being is first and foremost, our, the client work would get done. That was Thais Moore, Director of Marketing and Communications at Lockton Companies. This hour, we're talking about challenges women face in the workforce during the pandemic. We'll be back with our panel after a short break. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted.
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're listening to a panel I hosted with the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven. Our panelists are Melissa Boteak, Vice President for Income Security, Child Care, and Early Learning at the National Women's Law Center. Beth Bai is Commissioner of Connecticut's Office of Early Childhood, and Thais Moore is Director of Marketing and Communications at Lockton Companies. A recent New York Times article said women's productivity has decreased during the pandemic, and that may have a negative impact on their careers and opportunities for promotion. And yet for me, as a mother, a wife, and a professor, it feels like I am working more and longer hours than ever before. So does this moment present an opportunity to rethink what productivity, worth, and contribution means, especially for women? I asked Melissa Boteak to respond. I've looked at women. They are disproportionately frontline workers. There's 75% of hospital workers, 60% of grocery workers. They are 93% of childcare workers. They're also in uh, concentrated in industries that have been hit hardest by what people are calling the she session, to quote my colleague C. Nicole Mason's term, um, you know, because they've lost jobs in retail, in restaurants, in hospitality. Those are, are concentrated. And then on the home front, it's funny, if you look at surveys, men think they are doing as much as women. But when you actually look at the division of time, it's not. Um, women, women are doing more at home. Uh, and so you combine those three things uh, and you realize that women are carrying the country on their backs uh, during this recession. And I think that, you know, we say the word essential workers or, oh, thank you to our heroes and all these things, but nobody wants to be a martyr. You know, right. it's like, instead, right. instead of just saying, oh, you're essential, why don't we actually value care work? If we were to value care work, and that includes paid and unpaid care work because that is still productive. I mean, I have two young children at home. I have never been so tired in my entire life uh, working full-time job and caregiving and overseeing distance learning and all that stuff has my technical productivity at work gone down probably. Um, you know, but I'm now apparently a teacher. I am a, a mental health counselor. Um, you know, the number of hats I, this is coming from a position of privilege and having resources. So you imagine somebody who is low paid job with little flexibility. You can't call in the supports that way you did before because of the public health crisis. Right. And you know, a lot of grandparents who used to help out are unable to provide the same support that they've done in the past because of the health risks. And women are shouldering so much. So maybe if we take a step back from how we define productivity in terms of GDP, think about in terms of investing in the next generation of the caring for our communities of how, what, what does it mean to be a backbone in a community and to make sure that people are fed, are housed, are cared for, that our children are getting the mental health resources that they need. You look at those professions and they're overwhelmingly women and you look at who's doing that work unpaid and it's overwhelmingly women. I would argue that women have never been so productive and I would like to see them uh, get compensated accordingly. Here, here. <laughs> you know, Beth, there's this point about sustainability, that if in fact we are working harder, we are working longer hours and working in ways that don't always promote our own best self or our own self-care, 
When we think about how the anxiety and tension that women are feeling is also experienced by children and all of the uncertainty of whether schools will reopen or whether they can see their friends in daycare, that social emotional piece that is so critical to a child's holistic well-being. What are the kinds of innovations or areas that your office is focused on to help understand the reality of the challenge as well as the need for that access? Yeah, um, well, that's a that's a really good question. And um, listening uh, to Thais and Melissa, uh, uh, you know, it's just their metaphors for what's going on all across our country right now. I think that um, parents parenting is a collaborative event. Uh, and right now, uh, parents are without the collaborators they usually have. I can't imagine being a preschool parent without the support I got from Mirta um, and other childcare providers who helped me. And I have my master's in child development, but I, I, I needed that support. And, and you'd go in and talk to your child's teacher and they see your child a little differently and maybe even more competent than you saw your child. And it makes you reframe. Parents are missing those collaborators. And, and if there's a second parent in the home, that's a little bit of a break, but sort of relationships, this, this came up in our church as a sermon and it helped so much uh, me thinking about what parents are up against is that relationships depend on separation and coming back together. You have time right. apart, and you come back together. Right. And that's part of how relationships are built. And it's part of how we keep relationships going. And parents haven't had a break from their kids. They haven't had a break from their significant others, uh, who, who's ever in their bubble, maybe their parents who are in their bubble. And um, this is anxiety producing and it's lacking in those social supports. So I think it's really important um, for parents to make sure that they're in touch uh, with supports. At, at OEC, um, we're working right now, I don't know how many of you heard the data, but about a week ago, the State Department of Ed released data that basically 15,000 children just did not show up for school. And half of those were in preschool and kindergarten. So about 8,000 preschoolers and kindergartners who were expected in Connecticut to show up at school did not. Right. So those are parents without those supports. So we're actually bringing together our home visiting team and our early childhood ed team. And then we'll meet with the Office of Policy Management because Secretary McCaw, when she heard this was like, we've got to do something. And so um, we can only do home visiting for about 3000 families with our current program. But how can we leverage childcare programs that have closed? Maybe I know a really large program in Bridgeport had to close this week because Bridgeport is just exploding. Mm -hmm. So now those kids don't have a place to go. How can we reach out to parents and do remote home visiting, remote supports, um, so that parents do have someone to talk to, to get ideas for activities? Um, we're going to start paying for remote learning. Um, we're, we pay some now if the programs are open, but as programs, some of them are reclosing. We're looking at ways to pay for remote learning so that those child development experts can be available for parents. Um, we have Help Me Grow, 211 Help Me Grow, and we're also expanding statewide with a developmental screening tool um, for parents in Connecticut. 
uh, using some of our federal relief, relief dollars where there's an online app as much as, you know, it's what we have now. I'm, I would never be like promoting this so much, but where you can look at your child really from one month to second grade and do an assessment. And then it feeds into help me grow so that if there's an area where your child needs support, that maybe you'll, you'll get a call from birth to three or home visiting and say, we're here to help. So we're really stepping into the outreach now that this is extending longer and we're concerned about the second wave. But really, I think parents, it's important for parents to have breaks from their children and children to have breaks from their parents. And so um, in safe ways that are within social distancing and guidelines, um, any way uh, that families can do that, I think is important. Tice, we've talked a lot about mothering and child rearing during this pandemic and how all of that has been complicated by these sorts of new ways of interacting. And we often talk about the motherhood penalty, but some people may say there's a motherhood privilege that if I am the employee who doesn't have children, then I'm supposed to accommodate the employees who do or that perhaps I don't feel that my supervisor respects my unique needs during this crisis of, you know, physical distancing has often meant social isolation for many people. And if you're working so much in the Zoom screen, you aren't able to feed that connection that you need. How are you handling that? in your corporate position, but to also think more broadly again about the fullness of women's identity and the workplace and the need to be aware of and sensitive to unique needs without privileging those needs. You know, it's something that we have definitely um, taken a look at because we are, again, as I mentioned, where our offices are located, we're definitely in metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of younger associates who were in those areas away from their families. Um, and during the pandemic, they basically realized that they needed to be with their parents. So, you know, one of the um, concerns we have is, you know, are we gonna get those associates back? That's right. number one. But number two, as it relates to dealing with the isolation, we have to address that as if we were dealing with, um, with parents. We can't treat our associates any differently. Um, everyone is going through this in a different way and it's impacting them. So conversations, having, we are, I think one of the positives in the pandemic, and I'll keep saying that, is that we are talking about emotional well-being more than we ever have before. So we are able to have the, the conversations with the associates. Are you getting out? Are you having a social distance walk with a friend? Um, not to just be locked up in your apartment and just doing work. You know, when I see someone logged on at 11 o'clock at night, it's okay for me to be logged on at 11 o'clock. I don't want you logged on. I want you to disconnect. Um, and, and giving them that privilege to have some of the same rewards that working parents have. Um, and then it becomes truly a partnership versus an us versus them type of thing. Um, so it's definitely become a tuning in, listening to your associates, listening to the team members and everyone giving each other a break. Right. I, I liked what you said before about grace. And I think we often are really good 
particularly for women, we're usually pretty good at extending grace to others, but not always as generous in extending that grace to ourselves. And so as we think about the disruptions that have happened this year, those that may be yet to come and the opportunity to see innovations through those disruptions, I want to turn this part of our conversation to solutions because we've, you all have done an excellent job of outlining the challenges, of outlining the structural needs. But many people may listen to this conversation and say, okay, what can I actually do to get through this next wave of the pandemic? Or as an employer to think about how do I build a workplace culture that is actually attuned so that when the next pandemic or the next challenge comes, we're into that. Melissa, what would you offer as, you know, a solution or at least a way to think about how we get through this disruption to something that's stronger and more inclusive? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm really glad um, that we're pivoting to speak to solutions because, you know, this is this is a very important window of time. Um, in terms of really trying to ensure our federal lawmakers, in addition to our state lawmakers, understand the urgency of action. We at the National Women's Law Center have been pushing for at least $50 billion in dedicated relief for the childcare sector. For context, that's less than what Boeing got alone. You know, it sounds like a big number, but one airline got more um, than the entire childcare sector has gotten. Um, and what we're asking for is at least 50 billion. That number is based on an analysis that we did with the Center for Law and Social Policy and an economist um, who used to be on Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, looking at what would it take to make sure that the child care providers who are serving frontline workers have what they need to operate safely and to serve those children? Mm-hmm. And what would it take to keep afloat the child care providers who have had to close their doors? Um, you know, because of, um, you know, the the disenrollment or whatever it is that we have a childcare sector to come back to. And so there is a big effort going on uh, to really weigh in with the transition team um, to be calling into Congress. We have Save Childcare Wednesdays every week. um, where We're really leaning into this uh, at least $50 billion in relief. But to your point, it's not just about like, let's just bridge the next couple months and hope for the best. Um, it's really about how is relief a down payment for recovery? What are we doing to kind of lean into um, the crisis slash opportunity um, right now to say, okay, if there was ever a time when people understood the value of care work, there was ever a time when people appreciated their child care provider that appreciated the unpaid work that women do, this is that time. And so we don't want just a Band-Aid of relief. We want it to be uh, building proof points and building the narrative and really, um, you know, gelling around a social movement for affordable, high quality child care for all. And so the coalition is working more broadly on a bill that would achieve that to be introduced next year that uh, agitates in favor of child care being understood finally as a public good infrastructure, just like roads and bridges, and the women who do it are the workforce behind the workforce. And so to value them, to pay them a a good wage that acknowledges the work that they are doing, not just to help all of us work, but to invest in our our children and give them a solid start, 
Parents can't afford to pay more. That is where the third party payer comes in. That's the federal government. And so thinking about what does quality look like, we've had, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that we've defined quality in the past that have not been equitable. What does it look like to compensate the workforce? What does it look like to make sure care is culturally competent? What does it look like to build a supply in areas that have been childcare deserts? And really thinking about all of these questions and how we address them in a bill. It's also in thinking about childcare, not just as for parents who work, but for parents who are retraining, for parents who are looking for work. Our country is so obsessed with who is deserving and who is undeserving of certain things, uh, which is grounded in all kinds of racist stereotypes and tropes. Childcare, every child deserves high quality, affordable childcare. Every family deserves high quality, affordable childcare, whether or not they're formally attached to the labor force or not. And so, getting to a place where we have the supply, the workforce and the infrastructure around it is something that if we do it right with getting this at least $50 billion in relief, that will serve as a down payment for the vision of where we're going. That was Melissa Boteak from the National Women's Law Center. Today, we're talking women and work during the pandemic. Our panel also includes Beth Bai, Commissioner of the Office of Early Childhood and Thais Moore, Director of Marketing and Communications at Locked In Companies. We'll continue our conversation after a short break. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This is Disrupted. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we're listening to a panel I moderated called Interrupted, Women, Work, and COVID-19 with the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven in partnership with the Community Fund for Women and Girls. Our panelists are Melissa Boteak, Vice President for Income Security, Child Care, and Early Learning at the National Women's Law Center. Beth Bai is Connecticut's Commissioner of the Office of Early Childhood, and Thais Moore is Director of Marketing and Communications at Lockton Companies. One of the major challenges women face is the childcare crisis. According to a 2018 report from the Institute for Child, Youth, and Family Policy, nearly 63% of full-time working parents have a difficult time paying for childcare. The pandemic has exacerbated that crisis and forced many mothers to choose whether to leave the workforce or care for their children. So how do we address this burden for families and women in particular? Here's Beth Bai offering a solution. There's been an incredible job organizing the National Women's Law Center and other organizations on this $50 billion. We've never made this much progress in Congress. Again, the focus on the caring profession is critical and the bipartisan nature of it has been has been amazing. But if, if I can, you know, my roots are in worthy wages, which was that's how I got involved in advocacy and government at all was I was a child care director and I just would find these little notes on my desk that said, can I talk to you at the end of the day? They were leaving. I had 40 to 50 percent turnover a year. Children were losing important adults in their lives. Parents were losing important supports. And so back in the, in the late 80s, started working on on worthy wages. And while we've made progress, you know, in Connecticut, uh, we passed school readiness. We have 
150 million in state dollars in childcare, which is a lot more than other states have. But as a state, and I think this goes on all around the country, we keep picking access over high quality. And it's really time to dig in our heels, um, which I believe the advocates are doing and say, there are so many reasons that childcare is important. It's a critical part of our workforce infrastructure. It builds brain infrastructure for our future workforce. Um, we need to bring business to the table more in Connecticut and the Lieutenant Governor is working on that. The Governor's workforce is working on that. And at OEC, we, we have some um, consultant support to, to bring this to fruition because in other states, the voice of business has made a big difference in advocating for funding. So that's, that's one solution. I, I guess I wanna, I, I could say way more, but what I wanna say, my realization has been about childcare as infrastructure. It's infrastructure in so many ways. Think about families. If they had high quality, affordable early childhood that was 10 to 15% of their salary, say the parents have a stake, but if they had that, their wages would go up in a huge way. And for low-income families, it could be a 30% raise simply by having high quality. Stable housing is so important. The cost of childcare is often more than a mortgage. So if you could give families high-quality childcare, in fact, they could buy a home and start to build wealth instead of what's going on now, which is people working their tails off and getting nowhere. The, the American dream is just not real. It's broken. And something like high quality childcare that's accessible can make that dream more in reach um, for families. So I think the, the, we need to focus on this. And, and I'll, I'll close with this idea, which probably, Melissa, came from you, you guys originally. But we know that for farmers, we, we say food and affordable food is really important. For farmers, a third of their money comes from federal subsidies, a third of their funding. Imagine if every child care center just got a third of their funding in federal subsidies. That would make it more affordable. It would make it higher quality. Um, so we just have to get to the place where we think of child care, at least in a way that we think of food. And when we think about those young children's brains in those first five years, the lost potential of the current broken system is devastating. You know, Beth, I, I hear you saying that, and I am going back to the idea that we pay more money to bail out an airline company than we do to invest in the future of our country and young people. And I think it, it requires all of us to reconsider our priorities and the commitment that we make. Thais, many people, particularly women, also find themselves being a part of this sandwich generation of caring for elders as well as caring for children or for caring for others in their family and their community. And that creates an added pressure and an added strain that people often do it because they feel they are supposed to, but may not feel comfortable enough saying, look, this is a lot. So what would you say in terms of solution and ways that we can address this moving forward? You know, one of the things that um, you were talking about just help for parents in general, and I was, I wrote down to find your virtual village. And the virtual village is not just for your kids, but it's for yourself. You need to figure out 
who are the people that you can go and just have real honest dialogue with and say, I'm not okay. And sometimes it's tough to be, to get okay with not being okay. But one of the solutions that I have down is to be comfortable with saying, no, I can't do it. I can't, it's, I'm unable to do it. We are such a, you know, a yes, you know, community. Yes, I can do it. Absolutely, I can make it happen. Just give me some time, I'll make it happen. But now it's a matter of, we need that virtual village to help delegate some of that, right? So I am, I happen to be missing a generation as my mom is deceased, but my grandmother is still alive. Mm -hmm. So I am working through the nursing home social worker, as well as talking to my kids' school social worker and school psychologist. So I'm building that virtual village around myself just because there's just some things I just cannot handle. Um, there's so much decision-making in just everything, right? So you, you can't just walk into a store. You have to walk into a store and put on a mask and, you know, make sure when you get back out, you have your hand sanitizer going. Some of these decisions we can put off to other people, to other people that are way more competent than ourselves in those fields. Mm -hmm. So if you just get okay with asking for support, and being and, and saying, I need help, you will be surprised about the amount of solutions that you can come up with. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I came up with, not I can't say I came up with that, I gleaned, if you will, from one of my DC associates is at the beginning of this, I was like, I can't do this school thing. I, you know, watching them type was painful. Seven <laughs> didn't know how to type. They never got typing lessons, yet everything was now virtual, right? And asking them to write seven sentences, it was like, I just wrote five. Why do I have to write seven? Um, and a colleague said to me, she said, you know what? I got done with fighting my kids. She said, I hired the sitter who got, you know, who got sent home from college and she comes in and she handles that academic piece. So for an hour and a half a day comes in, does the academic piece. And she's like, the kids are like, oh, she's smarter than you. She's way better than you. She's like, you're absolutely right. And I copied that and it works so much better for myself. So you get ideas from other people just by having those conversations. Mm -hmm. I think that's helpful to think about building your virtual village, but also being okay with knowing your limits and understanding that there are people who have gifts to bear that can be an investment in your sanity and your wellness. And the time that we have left, you have all laid out these challenges and they're big, they're often structural and they can feel overwhelming. And you've also talked about the actions on a broader scale that need to happen. But you are also in a moment where there are everyday people saying, I want to do something. I want to help. What can I do in order to address this? And in the context, it's often philanthropists, women in philanthropy who are saying, I want to leverage my gifts to have an impact that can be the greatest impact, but can also really enrich people's lives. So in the time that we have left, I'll go around to each of you, starting with Melissa, what would you say to a woman in philanthropy who wants to help address these challenges? Give to grassroots organizations who are working together to build a social movement for childcare. A lot of these grassroots organizations are led by black and brown women. Um, the, it, the, the organization should center those experiences. They should center 
their leadership because they are on the front lines of this. They are experts in their own experiences. And if you make the childcare system work for low paid women, for black women, brown women, immigrant women, it will work for all of us. Um, if you start from a place of trying to make it work from a mush to a mushy middle, it will inevitably leave out the people it most needs to serve. And so um, we at the National Women's Law Center have established a community partnership program. Um, we are doing a lot more to, in addition to our state advocacy network of sort of professional organizations who are in state capitals um, and are sort of uh, you know, paid to lobby and to be experts on these issues, to also establish and deeply um, and compensate for turning to the expertise of the women who are on the front lines of this and making sure that the leadership um, and the and the voices of those in the work that we're doing. And so grassroots advocacy um, and organizing uh, groups, particularly those who are led by women of color, um, I think are is a great place to invest right now because in addition to sort of social services, um, we really need to build a movement. You've never seen large-scale social change in this country without a movement led by the people most directly affected. That just, it's not a thing that happens. And so if we want this to happen at a national scale, if we want to not only win, but to be able to defend the win, to be able to equitably implement the win, you need a social movement. And that social movement has to be grounded. Um, and so I would recommend finding those women in your community if you don't already know who they are and investing there and making sure that they're connected up to the ecosystem that we're working together to build. And Beth, what would you say to people who want to help, who want to support right where they are? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there, there are certainly um, good investments in Connecticut. We have an early childhood funders collaborative uh, that the, all the foundations feed into. That is part of how we moved to get more funding for staff family childcare networks that made a systemic difference and they're connected to national organizations. I wanna come back to what Melissa said. We're so close. I've been involved for more than 30 years in early childhood advocacy. I've never seen us so close to having um, a, a agreement among the various national groups and state groups and the relationships um, and the focus on this, I think we have a once in a lifetime opportunity uh, uh, of moving to a federally subsidized early childhood system and not subsidized to the point of starving everyone involved, the programs and the teachers. Right now we have enough to keep everyone starved, but we have understanding and an opportunity. And so women have to lift up their voices in early childhood, a lot of times what happens is parents are really engaged and then they get elementary school and they're just like, phew, I made it through childcare. And they don't think of it again. But in fact, you know, what we've all realized is that childcare continues. And so I would just say, try to stay engaged even when your kids are out of childcare. Think of what you could be doing to lift up women, both uh, some of our most important workers and our families that need our help the most, but it will help every family if we can push this over the line. And it's gotta be bipartisan and it's gotta be federal because uh, the states aren't in a position to do it, but the states are getting ready for it in case. And that's really saying something. We're close, but we still need that push. I, I appreciate the hope that this could be our moonshot, but that we are getting there. 
you know, so all hands on deck. And Thais, what would you say to women who want to help or to people in general who want to support these challenges? Just be a voice, be a voice, be an ally, be active, be present, be present, be a shoulder to lean on, be a voice. So it's, it's just as simple as that. That was Thais Moore, Director of Marketing and Communications at Lockton Companies. Thanks to Thais and the rest of our panelists for today's show. Melissa Boteak is Vice President for Income Security, Child Care, and Early Learning at the National Women's Law Center. Beth Bai is Commissioner of the Connecticut Office of Early Childhood. Thanks again to the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven and the Community Fund for Women and Girls. You can learn more about their work at cfgnh.org. Disrupted is produced by Daniela Luna and Katie Tolarski, and we'd love to hear from you. How has your life been disrupted this year, and what solutions would you like to see? Send your feedback to disrupted at ctpublic.org. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.